All right. So hello, everyone. This is Mike Grandinetti welcoming you to the next two episodes of the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, where we celebrate all things around disruptive innovation. Today, we're going to focus on the fintech revolution and then the role that the fintech sandbox based here in Boston is playing to help enable that revolution. So we've got two just world-class thought leaders on fintech. To my right is David Yagen. David is the managing partner of F Prime Capital. And across from me, Sarah Biller, who is the managing partner of Vantage Ventures. Welcome to you both, and thank you so much for taking time today. I know the fintech world is on fire. Uh, how you both keep up with this, just the number of transactions that have happened in the last week or two are overwhelming. Um, but maybe what we can do to get started is, David, I'll ask you if you could just take people through a little bit about your background. Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. I, I can go all the way back and say, you know, I, I was born in Indiana, grew up in the Midwest. Sarah and I share some things in common there. Hoosiers, and, huh? Yeah. Hoosier indeed. Um, son of two teachers. My father was a professor of law for over 50 years. He was, he, when he died two years ago, he was the oldest professor at Indiana University still teaching. And my mother was a teacher, got a master's in education um, at a time when not many women uh, were pursuing masters. And so I think I probably from them, I definitely developed an intellectual curiosity. If you had ever joined our dinner table, you would have uh, also known that we had to like show rigor in our thinking if we were going to defend <laughs> any views. Um, so it was a great upbringing in that sense. Um, I also would say, you know, I was probably a naive kid, maybe both at the time as well as just uh, understanding things outside the Midwest. And I, I do remember the day that I was on an overseas program studying in college and someone said, you know, you should consider investment banking. And I went home and I opened up the dictionary, the parents dictionary and said, what's investment banking? And I, when I realized what that was, I thought that sounded really interesting. And I, um, I always had a hustle factor, but I probably emailed or at that time mailed, you know, every investment bank. And I uh, mailed every strategy consulting firm at the time about jobs I recall I did not get a single response from a strategy consulting firm, but I got a lot of responses and ultimately offers from investment banks and had a great start of my career at J.P. Morgan. Um, it was a great time learning analytics, working in boardrooms, strategy, and and, and uh, it was a great start. But it was also there that I fell in love with technology. Just uh, many of our clients were in the telecom world and the computing and the start of the uh, kind of the surge in hardware and networking. And by the time I left, you know, the internet was being born and from that point, really never looked back. I, um, I did work at BCG a little bit later on, but then co-founded a couple of companies, one in the hardware space called Sensoria. I joined another startup called Into Networks, which was backed by F Prime Capital and Venrock, which is how I got to know the, my partners at F Prime Capital um, today. And then went to Cisco and um, ran Cisco's outsourcing business for a number of years before joining F Prime Capital as an operating partner and then beginning to invest um, about seven years ago full-time. That's great. Just tell everyone a little bit about F Prime Capital and your mandate. Sure. F Prime Capital is the venture capital arm uh, affiliated with Fidelity Investments. We have been investing, this is our 51st year, and we have uh, invested in technology and healthcare globally and are one of the largest uh, venture capital firms in the world. Sarah, please, if you would. 
I always love going after David because okay. it reminds me that life can be nonlinear and yes. be so successful. <laughs> um, not dissimilar to David's upbringing. I, too, grew up um, in the, not quite the Midwest, but uh, in West Virginia, in a very small town. Also, the parents, um, one an educator and one an engineer. And so, like David's dinner table, ours also required a lot of critical thinking as well as breaking down complex ideas, um, which lent itself um, to a natural curiosity. And I think David and I meet there around these ideas of where can you take abstract thinking and transform them into an outcome that actually affects change. And I think that's persisted. David shared with you his career persisted through his choices and decision to go through banking through different segments. Um, I, too, have a background in financial services. Um, I landed in a venture firm very early on at MCI. My parents thought I worked for 1-800-COLLECT, which was (laughs) totally satisfying to explain that, but was on that team um, before coming to New England uh, came to Fidelity, um, had a chance um, before that to build two life sciences companies. One was sold to a publicly traded entity um, and then really kind of cut my chops in Fidelity and learning about the industry. And from there, discovered a true passion around the capital markets and how the capital markets might solve large, in, seemingly intractable problems. Um, and left there to start a company called CMX, um, had an opportunity to really build an analytic platform for bond investors that looked at the early generation of NLP and the application of sentiment analysis. We sought to discover non-financial factors that would drive near-term credit risk, and it was a bit radical at the time. Um, From there, State Street adopted an interest in it. I went there as their head of innovation, ran their innovation ventures team, um, and had the good pleasure also of recognizing with David that there was a core challenge um, in Boston and then more broadly in the fintech community. And we together started the Boston Fintech um, kind of effort around bringing together community, bridging into that um, with an organization called the Fintech Sandbox, excuse me, Sandbox that we'll talk about shortly. But it's been an incredible trip wow. to where we are today. Uh, your your backgrounds, as you said, they are both incredibly diverse and, and shockingly, um, you know, the point of intersection after these very diverse backgrounds just, it just makes for a really great, rich discussion. So thank you both. Now, we're sitting here in Boston, and a lot of people probably don't understand how significant Boston has been as a financial center, certainly around the mutual fund business, et cetera. Would you be kind enough to just maybe set the tone? Because everybody thinks of New York City and London and a few other global cities, but Boston probably not so much. And Boston is, I mean, you're right. From an employment perspective, um, from, you know, overall heft in financial services in, in the world, it's it's a world-class city, one of the best in the country. The, the, I'd say the easiest way to separate it is the New York has dominated the sell side and Boston has dominated the buy side with Fidelity, Wellington, Putnam, um, you know, great hedge funds like Baupost. So, it has always had a really significant force. Um, there are, you know, the scale that you get in New York and almost any sector is in fact greater. And I think we see that in New York and London, just the sheer volume of, of employees and ultimately startups that we look at. But, you know, Boston has been a wonderful environment. And I think, um, I want to thank Sarah and I spent a lot of time uh, enjoying. It's just the community that can develop in a, in a city that has scale, but is still smaller. Right. And I, we see that every week in Boston and around FinTech Sandbox, Boston FinTech Meetup that Sarah runs and a number of other organizations. All right. So let's talk about FinTech. I'd love to get your definition of FinTech because it's a phrase that is used so regularly today. What does FinTech mean to each of you? 
How would you define it? Yeah, I um, I actually would think about it as it's not actually its own segment any longer. Perhaps one at one time was, but now it's a vertically integrated um, set of systems and capabilities that transcend almost industry, all industry boundaries. I mean, if you had to look at fintech for me as a segment, I think about the large categories, payments, lending, insurance, investing, and then the ancillary categories, real estate, other debt assets. But Again, we can't, I don't even want to give you a definition, Mike, because it has really intersected at this point um, with every industry. I get it. Okay. Yeah. All right. It, in a way, it's it's fun to answer that question in light of like the numbers for tracking for venture investments, you know, for 20 years, there were uh, the fintech sector as defined by technology sold to financial services institutions, you know, was a billion dollars, bumped around a billion dollars a year. And then in 2011-12, it went up to $2 billion and began this rise to, call it $10 billion or so a year in the U.S. But sometimes people say it's $25 billion, $30 billion. And I think that reflects this definition, as Sarah mentioned, went from this is just technology to run a bank to financial services of any kind. You could be just selling insurance itself as a startup um, to where we are now, which is companies in healthcare and in restaurants like Toast and and other hospitality industries, if they incorporate payments into their business model, they often get, you know, put into the umbrella of fintech. So, um, but for the this embedding of financial services in, in other categories, it, we, might, we might call it smaller, but we have now broaden the definition. Okay. So if I look at some recent Wall Street Journal numbers, they they say that in 2018, roughly $35 billion were invested in fintech startups. And for the first three quarters of 2019, I haven't seen the full year numbers yet, about $25 billion were invested. Do you think those numbers are reasonably accurate or do you think they're just very focused on sort of just fintech startups and they're missing a lot more investment in the fintech revolution? I mean, I'd like David to answer from his perspective as an investor. Yeah. I think about it from the actual uh, institutional perspective as well. And I think those numbers are low. Okay. I think what we could see is, is we know that financial services technology stacks as they exist today were built in the, principally in the 80s and 90s. And so fintech, as it relates to, invest, to investing in early stage companies, that masks the massive investment that's being made in our incumbents. Okay. And so, David, from your point of view, as an early stage fintech investor, what thesis do you base your investment decisions on? Where do you focus your, you know, the limited time that you have to go out and look at this massive landscape today? So I will say, even as large as it is getting, you know, fintech is still a niche within venture capital. So, you know, historically, it was 5% of total technology venture capital investments. Today, it's gone up to 10%. It's a large niche, but still a niche, right? And as a consequence, my answer to that is that, you know, we love fintech and we have for a very long time. So we go broad and deep across insurance, capital markets, wealth management payments. And the, the you know, the answer to the question of where do we, what do we like is more for over this period of time, you know, over the next couple of years, what investment themes do we find really interesting? Um, and I can, you know, share one of those, but yeah, there's several. Please, right? you know, please I, do. Yeah. One uh, so, you know, for several years, we have, you know, pursued a theme around vertical payments and this idea that uh, the marriage of software as a service for a vertical combined with payments as a way to monetize that is a really interesting way to penetrate new verticals. It was enabled by the fact that software was 
and is eating the world, as you know, Mark Andreessen said, and, and payments was was now able to be embedded in software and didn't have to be this separate service provided by merchant acquirers, ISOs, and processors. So, uh, you know, we have an investment for, since uh, 2015 in Toast, which is a really good example of this. It's a Boston-based company. It's, it's enterprise software for restaurants, but they also provide the point-of-sale service, the point-of-sale system, and the payments around that. But we look for that in other areas. And, you know, one of the main areas right now is healthcare, you know, with a Perhaps we, Sarah and I have a fintech hammer, so we see fintech nails, but, you know, healthcare has a lot of the characteristics of financial services. There's a need, for, there's a lot of data that needs to be uh, brought to bear. We need more transparency. Um, transactions are beginning to digitize. And as the consumer bears more of the cost of healthcare, even more going forward, consumer will demand tools like they've had in financial services to say, what, where should I shop for my medical service? How much should I pay at the point of sale? And we were looking at that kind of opportunity. I was like, oh, that's another great vertical where we see uh, financial services solutions. I might add to David's point about even healthcare, Andrew Lowe, who is so fabulous here in the Boston community at MIT and through his hedge fund, he postulates that the way that we we will solve cancer is that we turn that problem over to the capital markets and that they can more efficiently allocate capital and demand outcomes. And so if you think about it from just the person all the way up to the disease state where we see promise, it's really, it's an exciting world. Fascinating. So, you know, as a, as a consumer, right, when I think of maybe the beginning of the, the modern fintech revolution, I'd love to get your perspective. I think of a company like PayPal. And I think about PayPal being, you know, incorporated into eBay, you know, at a time when it made sense. But of course, they've since been spun out and unleashed and they now own Venmo and their stock has gone way, way up, right? If I look at the, an analog on, um, you know, what we'll call the, the, the current unicorn, the debacle, which we know is WeWork. And the, the public capital market's able to distinguish between real tech businesses and wannabe tech businesses, right? And if I look at what happened to companies like Lending Club or OnDeck or LendingTree, there seemed to be a reckoning at some point where the capital markets realized these are just loan origination companies. These are not really truly innovators. And all of them got their stocks just completely beaten down. One of these companies just made an acquisition of a Boston-based bank this week. Lending Club bought Radius Bank. Can you speak a little bit to that and what that might do to help, you know, hopefully help Lending Club get back on track and, and try to reclaim some of the luster that it seems to have lost over the last few years? Yeah. <clears throat> well, what you say, I think, is sums it up well. And, you know, Lending Club went public in, I think it was August 2014, summer of 2014, OnDeck went public shortly thereafter. And both of them well, in Lending Club, you know, that went from a peak of like $8 billion in value down to, you know, a billion, billion and a half where it is today. So, um, and I, and I think you're right. The public markets in the end are, do tend to be a definitive rater, re-rater of businesses, right? And they assess it, they assess both of those as financial services companies. And, you know, I think OnDeck began to trade at book value very soon thereafter. And Lending Club, you know, is at a, you know, slightly over one times type revenue, right? So the one of the concerns that they solved with the Radius Bank acquisition was an access to a stable source of deposits and capital. And that, you know, for people who are really sophisticated about um, the lending club at the time, uh, you know, I think the number one thing they would put their finger on is, 
a run on the bank. You know, what would happen if the money from the family offices, from uh, hedge funds or, or um, you know, kind of credit facilities were to disappear. And deposits is the best way, if not the only way, to really solve that. So I think you see that they acquired $165 million or so of deposits through Radius Bank, and they got a, a bank that was actually one of the more innovative um, banks in the marketplace. It's just that the team there has been doing a great job of putting APIs in front of their stack, working with startups all along. So it's just really, an, it feels like a great choice to solve uh, the deposit issue or start to address it in addition to getting a great team. Great. So since we're on the subject of acquisitions, let's maybe take a moment or two because there have been a number of very major acquisitions uh, that have happened just in the last you know week or month, right? So maybe one of the more noteworthy one is the $5.3 billion valuation that Visa put on Plaid. Um, so clearly this is, this is a, a massive statement by Visa. Can one of you comment on what you think Visa will do with this asset now that they've acquired it and what new strategic choices they may make and what we may expect as consumers? David, would you please? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the we're expert. All, we're yeah. all okay. smiling. Yeah. Yes. Well, so we, we were investors in Quovo, and I was on the board of Quovo for a number of years, which was acquired by Plaid a year ago, almost yeah. a year ago to the day that Visa acquired Plaid. And so we, and we remained shareholders in Plaid and loved the category, you know, obviously loved Lowell Putnam and uh, Nico and the team at Quovo, but um, Zach and team at Plaid did a phenomenal job as well. The... You know, I, I personally think the Visa acquisition of Plaid will go down as uh, as maybe as seminal as Google's ap- acquisition of YouTube. In, wow. this, in this sense of, yeah, we will look back and say that became, an, you know, five times bigger business, became an enormous platform for them and really helped them enter a new market. And they were the right buyer for it. So, you know, Visa or MasterCard were great buyers. And... The, to your you know question like why I'm sure you know Visa should answer that question there and there are multiple reasons you know one is I think recognizing there was a new data layer emerging in the fintech stack and that Plaid and Quovo combined had really started to own the way most fintech companies new developers new financial services companies would get their data out of financial institutions and then the really perhaps a second uh, you know bigger idea that that they'll define will be around um, helping Visa uh, move from credit cards and debit cards into bank rails. And, uh, you know, when I look at a future that some countries have, but America does not have a real-time ACH, which is, you know, movement of money peer-to-peer in real time, um, irrevocable, we don't have that today in large part, and certainly don't have it on the consumer and merchant side. And I think Plaid will help Visa with the authentication of that and uh, allow them to extend the same role they play in credit cards, like we will authenticate this transaction, it may go through, to we will authenticate this bank-to-bank transfer, and it can now be processed. Okay. So um, since we are in Boston and Fidelity casts such a long shadow here, and you have an affiliation with Fidelity, just something we spoke about briefly, there was a very interesting podcast I heard on the Wall Street Journal earlier this week about Acquia, which is a fidelity uh, asset that they look like they are now freeing up and making available. Can you comment a little bit about how Acquia might, you know, uh, potentially compete with Plaid or provide, you know, similar capabilities, perhaps from a different architectural point of view? Yeah. So, you know, I'm, don't have a lot of insight into how Acquia has structured, but I think you're right. They are uh, also 
addressing the data aggregation challenge and the fact that, uh, uh, and also taking a privacy and security you know, angle to it. And, uh, you know, the fact that a number of banks and the clearinghouse have teamed up with Fidelity to address that, I think is very interesting. Uh, what's less clear to me is just, you know, how Visa Plaid and the clearinghouse Sequoia, you know, shape up. But I think they're all working towards similar ends of having, you know, consumers be able to get uh, access to the data and developers who are working with those consumers and do so in a very secure way. All right. And so, Sarah, having you know, take on a very significant innovation leadership role at State Street Bank, right? You know the challenges of having large, you know, multi-hundred-year institutions trying to innovate, right? So we're seeing Fidelity spin out of Koya. We're seeing um, Goldman Sachs working on Marcus. We're seeing so many of these large institutions. Right here in Boston, we have John Hancock Manulife incubating a whole range of insurance tech companies, right? Very challenging, can you talk a little bit about what it's like from the inside as an incumbent working through these heavily regulated institutions, very hierarchical institutions, and somehow hoping to compete, you know, with much more nimble startups? Yeah, I think the first thing, Mike, to talk about is that idea of competition and the yeah. evolution of competition. Um, I think where we are right now in the segment is you're seeing a natural tendency to move towards a partnership model or a visa sort of looking towards of fintech um, as a as an opportunity, a strategic opportunity. There's no more better um, example of that than the Lending Club acquisition of Radius, right? right? So you're seeing the reversal of this idea of the large incumbents thinking that they they need to build it by themselves. Um, I, I wanted to make this point as I've thought about our conversation today. I teach a class at Brandeis in the graduate school on fintech, and what's remarkable to me is is that we actually. Fintech shows up in the Old Testament, right? I mean, it's a it is a concept of the introduction of emerging technologies of the day into financial institutions. It's long tail. It's two thousand years old. And so, when people talk about these moments where we feel like we're in a revolution or there's a disruption coming, we must remember that the incumbent industry has sought to adopt technology, maybe at a more measured pace than the entrepreneurs, but still yet has done it for thousands of years. And I don't expect that to stop. I think we will continue to see a desire for innovation. It is very hard to adopt new things as an, in an incumbent, um, but it's nice to see, particularly here in Boston, where you have mentioned a lot of the firms who have become partners and held hands with the entrepreneurial community, right. quite dissimilar um, than what you see in other communities around in large yeah. Great. And let me go back, Sarah, to a point you raised at the very beginning when I asked you about defining fintech, and you talked about the fact that boundaries have collapsed and it's pretty much everywhere. So, you know, the 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 big four tech companies coming out of Silicon Valley now mm -hmm. are, you know, maybe at the worst possible time, given their political capital, are, are trying to further integrate themselves into our lives financially, right? Mm -hmm. So Google's coming out with a checking check. check Checking account. Apple has this new, you know, partnership as you just described this time with Goldman Sachs on a credit card. Uh, you know, one level down from that, you know, PayPal has done a remarkable job with Venmo, which has really kept their stock aloft. And as a result of that, now there's going to be a Venmo credit card. So, what can we expect from all of these major social media slash tech companies that you know cast a very large shadow over our lives in general? How how significant do you think their attempts to become financial providers to us day to day will be? 
I think you start with the premise that increasingly all of technology is geared towards the personal experience. It's no longer a one-size-fits-all, and we know that by the phones we carry, and it's calibrated. My personal phone is calibrated to my health outcomes, right? I'm sure yours is as well. So if you think about the idea that the tech companies have began already as the tip of the spear towards a much more personalized, holistic knowledge of the individual in which they're dealing with, it doesn't surprise me that they would see financial services as the next likely application of that knowledge base. And David also has touched on that a little bit with the application of data in the Plaid and Quovo world where they intersected with the institution at the individual level. So that, it doesn't surprise me. What will surprise me is how far, or I think we'll all yet to be surprised, is how far will they go into an, in, an industry that is so heavily regulated that it puts at risk that very competency that they have right now of knowing the individual so well. Yeah, break, you know, move fast and break things doesn't seem to be a mantra that the financial services industry has embraced for good reason. Yeah, so it's at complete odds with that, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Anything to add, David? Are we? No, I think that's that okay. Says it very well. All right. And so let me. So now, right, all of this money that's been invested in what we'll call pure play fintech startups, to the extent there is such a thing, um, many, many different companies have been born. Some of them are household names. Some of them operate, you know, in the background. I'd love to ask each of you to talk about maybe two or three of the most disruptive fintech companies that you have come across. In terms of either disrupting maybe the world we don't know, which is their ability to allow the financial services industry to operate more effectively, more transparently, or in our own personal lives. So I just you know, love to get your perspective on, you know, what has captured your imagination so far. I'm happy to go first because yeah. I'm constantly curious, yeah. <laughs> so, as David is. But I think one of the companies that I'm um, most intrigued by right now is Rialto Trading. It's a New York-based um, company, one uh, led by CEO Sherry Newman, fantastic industry executive, um, leading a thought leader, young woman. Uh, we happen to have her as part of the companies that we've served through the FinTech Sandbox. And their intersection of looking at debt instruments from both a traditional um, debt offering and that in which you create a hybrid digital currency component to it to streamline the process and the you know the ability to offer debt um, in a less friction-filled way uh, seems to me a solution that the middle market has been craving for a while. And that's really where we have a debt drought. So I'm closely watching the evolution and the regulatory overlay that sits on top of institutions like Rialto. Okay, that's great. I'll note Plaid, but not talk more yeah. about it. But it's hard not to acknowledge yeah. that there is a new layer in the architecture as a result of some of the things Plaid and Quovo and others have done. The, you know, I'll I'll just say the uh, fun example, like it's hard not to say Robinhood hasn't mm. been disruptive, you know, to think that it has removed over a billion dollars worth of revenue from the industry by taking a model that had been tried in the past by Zecco and others of free, you know, free trading, but doing it at the right time when people are ready for mobile trading, people are ready to move their li lives online and doing it in an exceptionally, you know, a user-friendly and sophisticated marketing way. And, you know, they've crossed 10 million accounts. Um, they are generating you know, probably several hundred million dollars in revenue and in the process, you know, eliminated the billion plus of commission trading revenue from the other incumbents. So it's worth noting that is a true disruption in some ways. And, um, and that story is still being written. So. 
So last last uh, question on disruption. So I think about cash, or increasingly the the generation that um, my son now occupies, where to them cash is something that they look at like, what's that? Right. And I think about how my father used to budget. Right now, my father's an engineer, a very precise guy, and what he would do is he would, you know, twice a month, he would go to the bank, he cashes his paycheck and he'd put cash in all of these different envelopes, okay? Utility bills and insurance and food and you name it, right? And, and it was cash. You look at a young kid today, if they come and mow your lawn or babysit, they don't want cash from you, right? They, they look at you as if, what is this? They want you to Venmo them or, you know, however, you know, uh, square cash app them. So what implications does this incredible mindset shift have for our economy going forward, right? I think we've seen a dramatic increase in the number of transactions under $20 now being paid for by credit cards, debit cards, et cetera. What, what will that ultimately lead to as a, as a society for us? So I find this one of the most curious phenomenons that we've seen generationally. Um, I think we only need look at China and the dominance of Alibaba and Ant Financial, um, by extension, in the moving of the Chinese economy to a completely cashless economy and the societal implications of that. I mean, in many ways, your father, what he was enabling him to do was not just budgeting, but he was enabling freedom to put that funnel that money anywhere he wanted to go because he held it. Um, if you think about what possibly happens in a fully cashless society and the capabilities and control and the potential disruption to the economy because of the digitization, we must kind of watch carefully what's happening um, in these large, you will, societal experiments like China. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that, you know, we're seeing them here in our own communities. If you haven't been to Hudson Yards in New York, we it's it's a completely cashless community. And the question is, is how often, who and can it actually do that? Are we losing a segment of the population because we're, we're moving towards this environment where only credit is offered. And so I do I do go back and forth. I'm, an, I'm a huge advocate for the application of technology and the removal of friction, but I also recognize that we might have some societal challenges as we go forward into a cashless society. Okay. Please. Yeah, I it feels like the inexorable trend and we're headed that way and and other countries are ahead of us in large I think for a, a few reasons. One is that credit wasn't a, as big in other countries as it has been here. And as a consequence, countries like India, another great example, in addition to China, you know, have uh, UDP, which was essentially saying every Indian um, citizen will receive a bank account and it will be for free. And on in that account, they will be able to make real-time transfers. And it, that is important because I don't think in America we, we will get to cashless society at least not one that brings everybody along um, until we solve that piece of it as well. Um, so I, you know, I do, it's, a, it's semi-exciting to see it happening, but I'm also I'm more excited and more mindful of like the need to bring along bank-to-bank -bank transfers and then, of course, not leaving the unbanked behind that, you know, 15, 18% of the population that won't be able to participate in that. So, David, there's an interesting statistic that the Fed has released that suggests that we could if we could actually move to a in the U.S. to real-time payments, the ability to offer a paycheck for a day's wage, society, we would actually lift like 20% out of individuals in that lower category of poverty. 
I mean, it's worth it for fintech to continue to tackle these societal challenges. Interesting with the pay, you know, the payday loans and a lot of these other oh, just yeah. egregiously, um, you know, vindictive, for lack of a better word, ways of, uh, you know, exploiting people's That's right. inability to, to, you know, make it through the week. So, yeah, absolutely. And now let's finish on this one. So you mentioned and financial and financial is a phenomena. Um, and and for those of my listeners, right, we've we've had a couple of podcasts on China, so I suspect a lot of you have heard about Ant Financial before. But let's not forget, Ant Financial is a an AI factory. Okay, there is this is an organization that in five years has achieved half of the market cap of Citigroup, one of the largest financial institutions on the planet. So the Chinese experiment is certainly an impressive one right? What's happening there. And it's very funny because my Chinese students will, will often say, I'm going back to the future when they leave America and they go back to China, right? And of course, WhatsApp and uh, I'm sorry, WeChat, right? You can buy pretty much anything on WeChat. And it's not just kids, it's grandma and grandpa. It is a part of society. But the last piece is digital currencies or cryptocurrency. And, and of course, China has at least articulated it will adopt the national cryptocurrency as other countries are articulating. And David, you mentioned it's probably going to be a little bit longer for us in the States. Just maybe some last thoughts on what we might expect there in the next three years. Exactly. Yeah. I think I'll just <clears throat> add, it's fun to, to look at the crypto from a political lens and that in this case of the U.S. dollar and the you know, U.S. is the incumbent. We enjoy the benefits of having, you know, all trade denominated, most trade denominated in the U.S. dollar. So it makes sense for the Chinese to, you know, launch a competing currency that, that they mm -hmm. couldn't, can control and that may have, you know, distinct advantages. Like we should ask ourselves, does it have a 10x benefit over the U.S. dollar because of its liquidity, its fractionalization, its uh, ability to, to trade 24 hours a day and so forth? So there are things in that that I, I really would view through a political lens and how the U.S. responds probably will also be based upon, you know, politically trying to protect the USD as much as uh, launching a cryptocurrency. Absolutely. All right. Well, with that, we're going to wrap up this episode of the Disruptive Innovation Podcast. I'd like to, again, thank my guest, David and Sarah. Um, this is, again, the, the first of a back-to-back -back episode. Uh, I will be returning with both of these wonderfully articulate and thoughtful guests to talk about the FinTech Sandbox, created right here in Boston, and they are two of the three co-founders, and, and the role that they want it to play and that it is playing in the FinTech revolution that we've just discussed. So, Sarah, thank you. David, thank you. I know how busy you are. I know how insane the world of FinTech is and know what your schedules are like. Really appreciate you joining me in the studio today. Thank you. Thanks. All right. And this is Mike Grandinetti for now, signing off on this episode of the Disruptive Innovation Podcast. 